Welcome to Episode 3 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 6, Aram's Inlet, October 8, 2304 Are you sure? Jimmy asked Tony, very quietly and somewhat dubiously. They watched as the startlingly young-looking woman wrestled a utility tote down the pier. She handled it with panache and grace, but the relative size and awkwardness made it look like the tote might win at any moment. Her legs were stuffed into a well-broken-in pair of black rubber boots folded down at the top, and she wore stained jeans and a couple of layers of knitwear, making her look just a bit bulgy. Her hair hugged her head like a cap, and it took Jimmy a couple of ticks to realize it wasn't. Her hair really was that color. Carruthers says she's the best maid in the inlet, Tony replied, just as quietly and no less dubiously. Who are we stealing her from? She's between births at the moment, Tony said in a carefully neutral tone. Jimmy was about to follow up on that, but the woman was too close and waved happily. Hey there, you Jimmy and Tony, she shouted. Her nose was crooked just slightly, giving a striking, almost androgynous appearance to what would have otherwise been a classically beautiful heart-shaped face. Her time on the water was evident in the rich color of her skin and the slightly chapped look around the eyes. Her smile was infectious, though, and both of the older men found themselves grinning back. Tony waved, nodding in agreement. She trundled up to the side of the boat and stopped with her hands on her hips, looking along the lines of the vessel and not quite surreptitiously examining the two guys looking at her. "'Well, I'm Casey Keefe. Carruthers said you have a berth for her mate?' Her eyes were flickering back and forth between Tony and Jimmy, and the curiosity was plain on her face. Yeah, Jimmy replied, sticking his hand out over the gunwale. I'm Jimmy, he's Tony. I need a mate who can teach Tony the ropes, and frankly, I'm a little rusty myself. It's been a while since I've been out. She took the hand that was offered, and then turned to offer her own small calloused hand to Tony as well. Twenty Stanyers piloting a desk will do that to you, she replied with a smirk. Carruthers told me who you are, like I wouldn't have recognized you. It's not like Pirano and Spinelli are unknown names or faces on the waterfront, you know, she added with a grin. She reached down and flipped her toad up onto the rail with an expert and effortless heave. She stood bracing it on the rail for a heartbeat or two before she grinned at Tony and said, Give me a hand, will you, Tony? Let's get this boat underway. Go catch some fish. Tony shook himself and hefted the tote down from the rail with a grunt of surprise at the heft of it, while Casey swung herself lightly aboard. Jimmy smiled amusedly. Just like that, he asked. She blinked up at him. What? You interviewing or fishing? She asked with a grin. I heard the quotas are up and we got some huge landings to make. You want to stand around talking or want to go lay some twine out? Tony looked at Jimmy with a shrug. Jimmy laughed at himself and the whole situation. Well, let me get the engines up and we'll go see if we can do any damage. Single up, get ready to cast off. I need a couple of minutes to get him warmed up. He turned to the wheelhouse and headed across the deck as Casey and Tony stowed the tote temporarily on deck and proceeded to get the lines ready to release. In less time than he'd have thought possible, they were backing down against the spring line, and the bow was swinging away from the dock. Jimmy shifted to slow speed ahead, and the bow cleared, and Casey expertly cleared the spring line with a flip of her wrist and pulled the trailing end aboard, stowing it securely. Jimmy nudged the throttle up a tad, and they pulled smoothly out into the channel, pointed out to sea. Out on the eastern horizon, the sun was beginning to light the sky, and the murky pre-dawn dark took on a darker-than-dark texture. Ahead of him, Jimmy could see the other vessels leaving harbor, and Looking back around the wheelhouse, he could see he wasn't the last to leave the dock, either. The smell of ocean mixed with a tangy hydrazine exhaust 
and the faint smell of new paint and lubricant in the new wheelhouse. He and Tony had been trying out the boat, driving it up and down the inlet for a couple of days, but this was their first trip out into the open ocean. Jake Sampson said the boat was ready and up to spec. Jimmy himself had checked the nets, lines, cables, engines, winches, and electronics as he and Tony took turns piloting up and down the harbor. Jimmy felt the years behind the desk begin to melt away as he fell into old, well-learned skills. He grew up on a boat not unlike this. He learned the business from the bottom up under the watchful eyes of his father and a collection of mates and deckhands. If he were a little pudgier, a little bit slower, and a bit out of practice, well, so what? He sighed happily and nudged the throttle up a bit more as they cleared the inner marker, headed down the channel toward open ocean. Half a stand later, Casey came up from the forecastle, bringing two heavy mugs of steam and coffee and a bright smile. Tony's taking a nap, she told him, with a grin, and handed him one of the cups. A nap? he asked incredulously. He took some medication for seasickness. He'll need to sleep for a bit. He's seasick? Jimmy laughed. Not yet, but he's got the makings of a good barf storm coming. A little sleep, he'll be okay. After a pause, she asked, So where are we heading this morning, Skipper? I thought we'd just run out to the pumpkin and try a few of the new toys. This is the first real shakedown cruise for this haul, he told her. She sipped her coffee and nodded. It's a good idea. Kind of late in the season for starting a new boat, though, isn't it? She asked seriously. Jimmy grimaced. Yeah, but I had to give Tony a feel for what it's really like out here. All the other fishermen need to see I'm not sitting on my ass in the office while they're out here trying to make those ridiculous quotas. If Casey was surprised by his answer, she didn't show it. Instead, she noted at the nav plotter unit. May I? she asked. Jimmy shrugged. Be my guest, he said. She crossed the wheelhouse and fired up the unit with a couple stabs of her finger. Reaching up to the overhead, she started the repeater display unit and stepped back as the electronics merged radar, satellite, side-scan sonar, and historical imagery into a single display. It's too early to find any fish, she said conversationally, staring up at the pilot display. But where are you thinking of looking? Jimmy gazed up at the display and pointed to an area on the western end of the fishing grounds. Let's just run up on the grounds about there, see what we can see when it's closer to sunrise. We're still almost two stands from full light, and we'll be out of everybody's way out there on the end. Casey sipped her coffee and nodded. Yeah, not much on this end of the bank this time of year. It's fished hard all season, but it's a good place to try out the gear. She tapped the spot on the screen with her fingertip, and a glowing dot appeared in green. She punched two more buttons on the base unit, and the electronic compass beeped in response, showing a course adjustment was required and the direction to turn. Oh, shut up, she muttered to it. Squinting at the display, she tapped three more times and set waypoints to adjust the straight line course to a dogleg around two small islands and a coastal reef. I should do it, Skip, she pronounced at last. Jimmy looked up at the glowing display. With the course plot in green the amber dot that was their vessel, and the readout of position, speed, course, and estimated time of arrival running in the lower right corner. Thanks, Casey, he said automatically. Punched the autopilot reset before pulling his hand back from the wheel. The electronics bipped once, and the boat settled down to drive itself in the long run out to the grounds. If any other vessel got within a half a kilometer, the proximity alarms would make sure somebody knew it before anything nasty happened. With the broad expanse of ocean around them as they pulled out of the immediate coastal waters and into the open sea, the probability of chance encounter grew smaller and smaller. For the moment, there was nothing to do but ride it out. Casey settled into one of the padded seats bolted to the deck and rested her elbows on the arms, gazing out over the gleaming darkness as the coastal chop gave way to the long rollers of open sea. The boat took on a gentle fore-and-aft rhythm, riding up the face of one wave, down the back into the shallow trough behind it, before climbing the next one. 
Out here the air was much colder than ashore. Winter would be coming very soon, and the chill wind was a harbinger of the change. Jimmy's head lifted, his nose sampling the air out of reawakened habit as he stuck his head out of the wheelhouse door for a moment, before swinging it closed and dogging it, capturing the heat of the engine rising from the deck beneath their feet and keeping it in the wheelhouse. It's going to be a good day, he said idly. Casey pursed her lips in agreement and gave a little nod. Madoffa said so, too, and they're getting better at predicting, she observed with a grin. Weather forecasting was one of those arcane arts that suffered from its own successes. Most of the time, the forecasts were pretty good. Once in a while, though, the complex planetary systems that drove the planet-side weather reminded the forecasters that weather was not completely predictable. Humans had been on St. Cloud for close to a hundred stanniers, but... Localized conditions that produced the proverbial hundred stanier storms were not that well understood. The various science types kept sending out warnings that there are certainly climatological conditions that were as yet undocumented, particularly coupled with the terraforming activities during the first couple of decades of human occupation. Jimmy snorted to himself in amusement every time he read one of their warnings. More lawyers covering their butts, he thought. Thinking of lawyers reminded him of the quota problem. He sighed, and his mind kept chasing its tail around and around and around, worrying the problem even though he knew he couldn't solve it. So why are you doing it? Casey asked suddenly, her voice pitched to carry over the diesel rumble. The sudden imposition of her question into his thought stream startled him before he realized what she meant. Oh, you mean taking a boat back to sea? He asked for confirmation. Yeah, she nodded. You're the piranha man on the spot for the whole system. Why are you setting yourself up for all this work? He smiled a bit at her directness. I started out here, he said. Me and the old man opened up the pumpkin in the old man's bank. Yeah, she said again, but you paid your dues, Skipper. Why take it on again? Something's not right, he admitted. Those quotas are way out of alignment with what we can be reasonably expected to land. Every boat, every crew, it's all in the model. We know pretty well after half a century what any given boat can produce within some narrow range of factors. Weather, salinity, light, it all plays a part in the model, and we know roughly how many fish are here to catch. We know about how many boats it'll take to catch them. We know approximately how long it'll take any given boat to do it. She nodded her understanding. But, she prompted, these quotas throw that model out. We need about half again as many boats as we have working now to make that level of catch. Casey gave a low whistle. I knew it was a big increase, but I didn't realize it was that big, she said thoughtfully. It's because of diminishing returns. The schools are only so big. Once you scrape through the larger schools, you need to work harder to find and catch the smaller ones. The raw numbers aren't that much bigger, but the operations here on planet are geared to a level of efficiency as much as production. Making those quotas would be ruinously expensive, even assuming we could. You mean we can't? she asked. Jimmy shook his head. We can make enough boats, even equip them. That's not the problem. Understanding lit Casey's face. No crews, she said flatly. Jimmy nodded. We got about 80,000 boats working the planet right now. In raw body counts, we could probably find enough people to crew another 3,000 boats across the whole south coast. It would be expensive. Prices would be crazy. Fishing would be almost impossible after the first few weeks of the season because of the increased pressure on the grounds. It'd be extreme. 3,000 more boats wouldn't have the capacity to reach the landing quotas. We'd need closer to 30,000 more. The fleet would have to be very close to half again bigger. Casey whistled again. Are there that many fish? Jimmy nodded ruefully. That's the hell of it. The fishing stocks could take it for a few years. I had the fisheries management people run projections. 
If we could catch them, the current stocks are resilient enough to survive it for a decade before the gene pool started being hurt. Casey looked startled. Just a decade? Jimmy shrugged. Economically, it would be ruinous. More and more boats chasing smaller and smaller stocks. The cost of landing a kilogram of fish would approach the cost of diamonds. What are they thinking? Casey asked in disbelief. Jimmy shrugged again. That's the question, and we don't have any answers. Casey looked out across the glassy ocean surface. Well, that takes us back to my original question, then. Why am I doing it, he asked. She nodded without looking at him. Yeah. Because, he said, nobody is going to lose a boat over landing quotas unless I lose mine first. Casey looked startled. But who'd take your boat away? You're the Pirano man. A wolfish grin spread across his face. That's why, he said. Casey looked at him sharply as the logic of it worked out in her head. You're a sneaky bastard, aren't you? She said with a grin, almost as predatory as his own. Jimmy chuckled and nodded. I've been called worse. Casey laughed out loud at that, and they lapsed back into a comfortable silence, riding across the water toward the brightening sky. Chapter 7, Calum's Cove, October 8, 2304 Otto woke slowly. The previous days sitting on the rock had given him aches he hadn't realized until he'd left Bentley's head and came back home at the end of the day. He hadn't even gone into the village to see the new boats. He smiled in satisfaction, knowing he'd been the first to see them as they rounded the head. That was as close as he'd have been able to get in the village anyway. They did look very fine. As he dragged himself up into consciousness, he became aware of the voices coming from the kitchen. Father and mother were having a discussion in hushed tones, but given the intensity, he was pretty sure it wasn't about the price of eggs. In spots, he could make out his mother's voice, but his father's responses were just too muffled. He lay very still, trying to hear what they were talking about. Richard, she said, I know how you feel about this, but you're being pig-headed. Think. His father said. You're the shaman. He's your son. He'll be a shaman if he wants to, when he wants to. You know how this works better than most. Don't be an ass, Richard. His father retorted sharply. He heard his mother heave a sigh and say gently, It's a fishing village. Everybody fishes, she started. His father interrupted. Yeah, I know, but you could if you wanted to. That's not the point, and you know it, she replied calmly. This is a fishing village. Everybody fishes. It's only natural that Otto wants to fish, too. Every other kid his age in the village is out on one boat or another. How do you think that makes him feel? How did it make you feel? She asked quietly. His father didn't respond, at least not that Otto heard. His mother changed the subject a bit when she asked, So, who's going to crew on the new boats? Have they picked skippers? His father replied quietly. True, but there's a definite pecking order down there. I'll bet Red and Alan have it all sussed out between them. You wait and see. His father said in response and then sighed. He said. Otto heard the chairs scraping as they both got up from the table and his father left the house. When the footsteps crunching on the walk had faded, his mother said, You can come out now, without raising her voice. He's gone. Otto was startled, but he clambered out of his bed and into his dirty clothes from the day before. Pajamas went under the pillow as he straightened the covers. Not exactly a made bed, but it would pass initial muster. How could you tell, he asked as he padded barefoot into the kitchen. 
Your bed stopped squeaking, she said. He looked at her quizzically as he poured some grain apple juice. You toss something dreadful when you sleep, Otto. Your bed squeaks all the time, she said. I knew you woke up because the bed stopped squeaking. He felt his face heat, but there wasn't much he could do about it. So how much did you hear? She asked idly, taking her seat at the table once more. I could hear you, but only got mumbles from father, he replied honestly. What's his problem with fishing? He doesn't understand it, and it's a dangerous business. He wants to protect you from it, is all. As a shaman in training, you're going to be a shaman one day, unless you decide not to be, she said with a smile. But if you renounce it, then you're liable under the same rules as other people here. You have to have a company job, or you have to leave. Otto leaned his lanky frame against the counter as he sipped the chilled juice and considered both breakfast and what his mother had just said. So he's trying to make sure that I don't fish so that I don't get deported? His mother gave a soft chuckle. Well, not exactly, but that's certainly part of it. She looked at him seriously for a few heartbeats and then said, Fishing is a dangerous business. Yeah, I know the boats are safe and all that, but accidents happen. And when the sea is concerned, they happen a lot. People get killed out there, Otto. Good, careful, responsible people. They get killed all the time. We all die eventually, Otto pointed out in the callowness of youth. Yes, Otto, we do, his mother grinned at him. But the idea is to avoid doing it until you absolutely have to. And with fishermen, even in this day and age, there are a lot of possibilities for accidents. Otto nodded, but he wasn't convinced, and it showed in his face. So was he mad that I went fishing yesterday? He asked, going back to the original question. He was dying to know what they'd been not quite arguing about, but he couldn't very well ask. Yes, a bit. Is it going to be a problem if I go again today? He asked uneasily. His mother shrugged. Well, we live in a fishing village. Those three harbor days you caught yesterday were very tasty. A nice change. She looked up at the ceiling as if considering what to say next. You might do a little fence mending today, though, and be the good son for a bit, she said finally. When the weather turns, nobody will be fishing, and your father will be carving. If you want to get on his good side, start talking to him about Welkies. Otto looked a little startled at that, and his hand went involuntarily to the small carved seabird hanging from a thong around his neck. His grandfather had carved it, and it had come down to him on his tenth birthday. Welkies were the symbolic representation of the shaman's gift all along the south coast. There was a goodly amount of tradition and folklore, not to mention mystery about them. He was a bit nonplussed by the sudden notion that he, Otto Krug, might be carving a Welkie. Ah, his mother said with a smug smile. You hadn't thought about that now, had you? Otto shook his head but didn't speak. He had too many conflicting ideas running through his head. How could he carve a Welkie? He'd seen the figures take shape in his father's hands, but they hadn't really seemed like something he could do. There was a kind of magic about them that he hadn't really considered before when he was thinking about what it meant to be the shaman's son and someday perhaps shaman. His mother sighed. Otto, my boy, she began fondly. Sometimes I wonder whatever you are thinking, and then there are times I'm pretty sure you're not thinking at all. A mother's duty, I suppose, she ended with a smile. You're turning into a fine young man, but it's time for you to stop wool gathering and start really thinking about what it means to be a shaman's son on the south coast of St. Cloud. I have been, mother he protested, suddenly shucked from a state of voicelessness, ever since I was old enough to be told I'm to be the shaman. She shook her head gently. No, Otto, I don't think you really have. Up until today, had you ever really thought about carving Welkies? About the needs of the people in the village? About who's in trouble? Who's the troublemaker? Did it occur to you at some point that you'd have to deal with it? 
Otto stopped and thought then, for perhaps the first time in his young life. In all honesty, he'd never really thought about it at all, other than as a burden he was going to be saddled with against his will. He was startled to realize he didn't even know what his father did as a shaman, beyond talk to people, walk the beach, and gather bits of wooden shell, which he carved into Welkies and gave out to various people around the village. I thought not, his mother said, reading his thoughts from his face. Maybe it's time you took a walk with your father and stopped worrying about how unfair it is to you and started seeing what it is he does, she suggested. Otto sighed, but recognized the wisdom of her advice. It felt strange to consider this, as if waking up to the possibilities that he'd been surrounded with all of his life, even talked about without any kind of real understanding until that moment, it was if somebody had turned on a light in the attic and all the things he'd been walking into, over and around for years, suddenly took on color, texture, and shape. He's gone to the village, you say? he asked at last. Yes, she said. Alan wanted to talk to him about something. He's probably at the Pirano office. Otto glanced at the chrono over the sink, nodded to himself, and headed for the door. Breakfast, young man, breakfast, his mother stopped him. You can't be charging all over town on an empty stomach. I won't be, mother, he said with a knowing grin. This time of day, Alan Thomas is at Rosie's having breakfast. I can get something there. Her eyebrows arched upward in surprise, but she smiled in agreement. Well, see that you get something proper. Your father will be busy today, and you'll want to be able to keep up and make a good impression, she grinned. Do a good job today, and tomorrow you can go fishing. He grinned back and headed for the door. It was a matter of just a few ticks for his long legs to scissor him into the village, and he arrowed straight for Rosie's diner and coffee shop, just a block up from the head of the main docks. The Pirano officers were around the corner, and long experience had proven accurate as Otto walked in the door and spotted Alan Thomas sitting with his father in a booth at the far side of the small dining room. There were a few people, but the air was thick with the smell of rich coffee, savory bacon, and warm bread. Rosie's wasn't very busy this time of day. She opened early to give the outgoing fishermen a hot breakfast, for those who wanted it, and she'd closed just after lunch. At 9 a.m. it was too late for fishermen and too early for anybody else, except the few people who were off work, or who had enough flexibility in their schedules to be eating breakfast at the odd time, like Alan Thomas. Rosie looked up when the little bell rang over the door, signaling his entry, and she smiled and waved him over to the counter where she was just wiping it down with a clean cloth. Hello, Otto, she greeted him warmly. You're just in time to try some of this pastry. He crossed to the counter but looked over to where his father was sitting. Rosie caught his glance and said softly, Why don't you sit here until they're done, hon? I'll give you a nice hot cup of cocoa and you can tell me about your fishing yesterday. How'd you know about that? he asked wonderingly. She laughed and wiped her hand on her apron. Hon, nothing happens around the village that Rosie don't hear. You should know that. He nodded ruefully. Well... Mother said I need a good breakfast, so if I could have some bacon and eggs? He took a seat where he could keep an inconspicuous eye on his father. Something didn't look right, but he couldn't say what. Rosie nodded and asked, how'd you like them cooked? Scramble, please, he said, and sipped the hot cocoa she'd already put in front of him. She stuck her head on the kitchen and called, three on a rack, big on the side, Fred. You got it, Rosie, Fred's voice came from the kitchen. Rosie came back to distract him from wherever it was his father was doing. In a few moments, Rosie slid a warm plate piled with eggs, bacon, potatoes, and toast in front of him, and he was distracted for real. When he looked up again, Alan was standing up from the booth and said, Well, just think about it, Richard. You'd be a big help to all of us, and it's only temporary. His father gave a noncommittal nod, and murmured something that Otto couldn't pick up. Alan turned and smiled at Rosie and waved at Otto, headed out of the diner, the doorbell tinkling brightly as he left. 
Otto watched him leave and then turned to see his father sitting in the booth. His hands were cupped around the coffee cup, and he had an expression that Otto couldn't quite place. It looked like amusement or amazement. He scraped the last of his breakfast off his plate, drained the last of the sweet chocolate from the mug, and thumbed the tab to pay for it. Rosie stopped him with a look and a short shake of her head. Let me give you a warm-up of that cocoa, Otto, she said. On the house. With a glance at his father, who hadn't stirred or changed his expression, he settled back on the stool and pushed his cup over to Rosie to fill. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rosie. She winked at him and poured some cocoa out of the warming pot in her hand. You betcha, sweetie, she said loudly. In a much softer voice, she added, You just hang in there for a few ticks, hon. Give him a chance to come back. She winked again and bustled off to rattle glassware. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. The music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia Perdigon, available at the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For our website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.org/golden. <laughs>